Welcome everyone to In the Know with Cat Bobino. Today, my extra special guest is Dr. Myra Padilla. Padilla, sorry. <laughs> I'm going to get it right one day. It's all right. Who has her PhD in neuroscience from UC Berkeley and currently teaches at Contra Costa College and also does amazing other things at Contra Costa College, right? So outside <laughs> of just teaching. So um, thank you for being on the show tonight. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Can you tell our audience, first of all, what is neuroscience? So neuroscience is the study of the brain and all of its functions and how, um, for me, um, I have my uh, discipline specialty in behavioral neuroscience. Okay. So how behavior interfaces with the environment and how that changes the brain and how the brain helps change behavior. Okay. So I did interview a woman in neuroscience years ago mm -hmm. when I was at KQED. And she did it because she also is an opera singer. Oh, nice. But she liked how people would get into character and how the brain operates when you have to change who you are, your behavior, get into the character that you're playing for the, the um, program or the show. And I guess that falls kind of under behavioral, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. I'm not sure that you probably didn't study... I didn't say that, that part of it, but <laughs> what about behavior caught your eye? So, um, you know, I grew up in Richmond, California, and okay. um, there's a lot of um, chronic stress that folks in Richmond are suffering from. And since I was young, I would watch young people do things that were um, leading them to negative consequences. Okay. And sometimes they knew, you know, the consequence was coming, but they would still sometimes engaged in this behavior. And so I was really curious, like, what creates in your brain a kind of action that you know is going to bring you some negative consequences? And so um, it's a question I had, but I had no idea that neuroscience was a discipline or that people could study the brain or any of that when right. I was going through high school. And so um, I kept that interest throughout my lifespan and as I transitioned from one educational system to the other and I discovered neuroscience, I was like, oh. <laughs> like, like, oh this is exactly what I was thinking yeah, about. That's right. So, yeah. That's awesome. So, where did you go to school? How did you get started with this? So, I graduated from Richmond High in 1990, okay. a few years ago. Right. Not that long ago. <laughs> Not too long ago. <laughs> um, and I um, actually was a teen mom okay. and um, I, despite being class president and a cheerleader and doing all kinds of stuff, you know, in my community, um, this was a phenomena that was being experienced by young women. And right. so I fell into that particular culture and um, got pregnant, but I still graduated on time. Congratulations. I, thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, so I had my son in June um, 1990, and I graduated, uh, I'm sorry, I graduated in June uh, 1990, and I had him in July. Wow. Um, yeah. So it took me a minute before I sort of um, stabilized my life mm -hmm. um, and returned back. And I, one of the reasons I'm at Contra Costa is that when I decided to go back to school, I went back to my community, and that was a community college that helped support me. Wow. And so there, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I was a single mom by the time I went back to school. Um, I had married and then gotten divorced. And so when I went back to school, um, I thought, I want a really quick 
you know, degree, something that's going to make me money. So I thought I was going to study business. Um, and long story short, because um, when I got to Richmond from Mexico, I immigrated when I was five, um, I didn't speak English. Okay. No one had to translate math. So I had a special love of math nice. since I was young. Mm -hmm. And so when I got back to the community college, um, I tested well in math. And so I got placed in um, a pre-calc course. And I was doing it just for fun, still thinking I was going to <laughs> oh, do business. Fun math. Mm -hmm. <laughs> fun math. Yeah. And um, I did really well, and my um, teacher suggested that I might want to think about taking a, a physics course. And I thought, no, what would I need <laughs> to take a physics course for? She said, but not that many people really enjoy math, and you should just try it. And I really liked her, and I trusted her, so I did it. And that year, I really fell in love with physics. Um, I had an amazing professor, Dr. Conrad, who um, was just brilliant at making physics relevant to my experience wow. and took his time and helped me really understand concepts. And so um, after that class, um, I was in love. And so he helped me um, shift my whole educational plan. Um, I didn't know that you could find jobs as a scientist. Right. Never met anybody who had that as a job. And um, he helped me see that there were all kinds of things I could do with physics. <laughs> and um, so I decided to shift. And so I um, transferred from Contra Costa with an associate's degree in mm -hmm. physics. Oh, okay. And went off to UC Davis and uh, earned an a applied physics degree from UC Davis. Congratulations. Thank you. And then um, my senior year um, had some um, not so positive experiences with some of the faculty right. there um, and started to think about whether or not that was really what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and I was in a program called the McNair Scholars. Mm -hmm. I know about them. Yeah. And so um, through a lot of support with the McNair group, I ended up at a conference called SACNAS, a Society for the Advancement of Chicanos and Native Americans in okay. Science. Nice, nice. And um, at that conference, it was the first time I ever saw so many people of color that were scientists. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things I discovered at that conference was interdisciplinary work. So like the cross between physics and chemistry. Right. And, you know, um, and I got really excited about biophysics and started digging into the biophysics world um, and the research. And um, long story short, thinking about this uh, question that I had when I was young and my experience in Richmond, I started to see that I could study something called neuroscience. And so McNair scholars helped me kind of figure out the landscape in the area. And there was a professor at Davis that I talked to mm -hmm. um, and that year he had actually gotten a job offer at Berkeley okay and when I went and I met him um, he resonated with me he was really warm and um, he didn't see that I was uh, uh, he didn't see in a negative light the fact that I was a single mom right he actually thought that was pretty cool um, and so we got to know each other, and he suggested that I applied to UC Berkeley for grad school since he was heading in that direction. He thought it would be a good fit for me with the physics background. And so I did, and I got in, and so I followed him over to Berkeley and was in his lab um, 
one year as a research uh, assistant, and mm -hmm. then um, the following year started grad school. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Just listening to your story, there's so many things that I want to pull out of it that I think is very important because one of the things is um, I grew up in Oakland, so not far from Richmond. No, not far. And I graduated 10 years later from you. <laughs> so not that long. And But, you know, growing up in that era, there were a lot of things going on. And one of the things that's very interesting is my father, he worked for the city of uh, Oakland, mm -hmm. or Alameda County, I should say. And his work was primarily with women uh, who had children in high school. Mm -hmm. And so it's crazy that we see it as a stopping point for some for some people. You know, you, yeah. you have a child young, you're a single yeah. parent, this is your end, now it's just time to work and not pursue a goal. But you didn't do that. You kept going, you pursued your goals, you went to school, you graduated, and all the way up to a PhD. Yeah. And then being an immigrant. And I think that's very important that people realize that we get knowledge from everywhere. And there's no reason to stop the knowledge just because of who someone, where they're from or what they look like, or even if they don't speak English when they first get here. That's right. You know, there's so many opportunities if we take it. Yeah. And then seeing someone who looks like you doing the work, like that helps in some yeah. aspects because we don't see that sometimes with people of color is seeing the some of us in the science realm. Yeah. And so you got a chance to meet people at the conference and even boost it because I know speaking to some people who go to school where it's predominantly white, it's harder for them because they don't see it. You know, I had a, um, a young lady here. She's about to get her PhD in molecular biology from mm -hmm. Berkeley. And she went to a conference in Hong Kong and they were excited to have her there because she was the only black person to even apply, let alone yeah. go. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's great that, Thank you. You know, you had these opportunities and you pursued it. You kept yeah. going. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm over here like <laughs> super excited, <laughs> cheesing very hard because I'm like, oh, my God, this is this is the story that some young women need to hear. Yeah. You yeah. know, because I've seen it where they think they have to stop because they had a child. Yeah. You and don't. that is not the end of the road. That is only the beginning. That's right. Yeah. It might be a little bit harder. No one's going to take that from you, but you just keep going. Yeah. So I love that. Thank you. So, Thank you. Oh, all right. I'm off my pedestal. <laughs> <laughs> so once you uh, went to Berkeley and you studied neuroscience, you did behavior, what was your dissertation about? So I was studying the frontal lobes. So mm -hmm. um, the frontal lobes are the last um, piece of the brain to evolve. Mm -hmm. And um, when you are a teenager... They're also the last part of your brain to get connected. Right. And they're the, well, usually they're one of the first parts of the brain to start to deteriorate with aging. And if you look at all of those different um, aspects of the frontal lobes in terms of development, um, it impacts behavior significantly. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was studying executive functions. Um, and I was really interested in trauma, both um, physical brain trauma, so from a stroke or from a car accident. Okay. Um, I was also interested in um, this sort of developmental shift. And so my dissertation was actually um, on patients that had frontal lobe 
uh, strokes. Mm -hmm. And in particular, um, there is a group of people who either through stroke or through brain physical trauma, so car accident or someone hits them on the head or any of that, right. they start to have behavioral problems and they present looking a little bit um, like uh, uh, psychiatric issues. Mm, okay. And so some of the things that happen with people that have orbital frontal uh, damage is that um, they're very impulsive. Mm -hmm. And they understand the rules, they understand morals, and yet they can't inhibit their behavior when they have uh, an impulse. And so um, they were really exciting patients to study because they did all kinds of things that, even though they understood them, um, they still would engage in that behavior. And so it helped me um, understand the role of the orbital frontal cortex in inhibiting um, sort of reactionary responses. Um, and how that relates to the cognitive parts of the brain, like the dorsal lateral that, you know, processes more cognitive information. Right. And so um, that was my um, dissertation, looking at behavior in orbital frontal patients and trying to discern the cognitive versus the behavioral changes. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, once I left Berkeley, I went to the San Francisco Brain Institute or Sound Technology. It was a hybrid uh, research institute and a for-profit company all okay. in one. So it was an interesting um, place to work. Um, and there I was looking at adolescent brain development and I was doing some studies on um, the impacts of alcohol, caffeine, marijuana, on um, responses right and so that was really interesting um, you know understanding how those substances impact the brain and how they slow down processing and uh, oftentimes create different kinds of um, thresholds so that actions that you would normally take sometimes get um, uh, ignited and then we behave in ways that are not what we normally would do so that was a really exciting place and then um and then i was um working at um sri international in menlo okay. park uh -huh. and there i continued to do some adolescent development work i got interested in um the impact that alcohol was having in in the brain and in particular with recently sober alcoholics okay and so did some research there and some sleep research um, and some aging research. Um, so that's kind of the scope of the research that I engaged in. Oh, that's cool. So again, I want to let everyone know that we are doing this live on Facebook. This is In the Know with Kat Bobineau. I do have a couple of people who have joined us. So thank you for joining us. And one person in particular, DJ, she says she loves hearing the women in STEM that are on the show and what they're doing. So that's great. Thank you, DJ. And thank you everyone who's on, who's joining us via Facebook. And if you have questions or comments, please put them in the box. I can see it. I'll read it. And thanks for joining us the podcast. Now, I've only taken a few neuroscience classes, so of course I am no expert. However, I do remember um, there was one class I took at Cal State East Bay, and it was an elective class. So I think we had all of four students in the class. And we all had to read research papers all about different disorders mm -hmm. that had to do with neuroscience. But one of the things that you spoke about was the frontal lobe, which is some cognitive materials that we, we deal with that sometimes gets destroyed 
early on either with aging or with alcohol or smoking, things like that. So one of the things that people are saying um, we're worried about is vaping, Mm. kids and vaping. Mm. And, you know, they're trying to peg vaping as more healthy than cigarette or marijuana. However, it's not, I'm not going to say it's not the tobacco or the marijuana, but it's the smoke getting into the brain that's killing off cells or cutting off uh, pathways. And if there's, our children are doing that at a young age, they're doing it before everything's developed. Yeah. So I don't know too much about the vaping um, piece. Um, wasn't happening when I was doing research. But I, I can speak to the fact that anything that causes toxicity in the brain, right, is going to cause some damage. And um, the one of the things that I can speak to is that folks that smoke or drink early on um, tend to um, have environments that are causing them some stress. Mm. And chronic stress um, is definitely... Um, damaging to brain development right and one of the things from studying alcoholics um that also um oftentimes translates in some ways to folks that smoke is that um uh this is a way of Mm self-medicating and what i found with alcoholics um is that um There was some literature to say that there was already some brain damage associated with alcoholism. Um, And from my perspective, I I, I didn't see it that way because I knew a lot of functional alcoholics. (laughs) And so um, I I came at it from a very different perspective. I thought that um, they were very hyper um, aware and okay. then that, that was maybe causing some stress. And so um, in studying them, I found that um, the anterior cingulate, which connects to the frontal lobes, okay. processes a signal when we're expecting a reward or we're predicting something. If it doesn't happen or if a negative consequence happens, it actually sends a signal that says, this is an error. This is not right. Mm, okay. Um, reprocess this right rethink this and what i found in alcoholics is that um they have a very large response so they are always actively engaged and they're always um having a signal that says this is not what we predicted not what we predicted (laughs) right okay and then they do um alcohol and that signal is dampened Mm, okay so it's kind of like People are stressed and they're trying to get to the level of being less stressed. But Mm -hmm. right now, because of it, the brain is signaling to them, hey, you're stressed. This is a problem. This is not what we wanted. This is not what we anticipated going through our day. You know, stepping out of the car and spilling coffee on our shirt is not what we expected this morning. (laughs) But it happened. So now I'm a little stressed out. And, you know, I'm going to dull it with alcohol. Yeah, self-medicate. And so um, this this has some implications, right? Um, So when I started to see that people were self-medicating in chronic stress situations um, and doing all kinds of interesting things to medicate, right? Um, Right. So it could be drugs, alcohol, the drug, the um, sex, uh, you know, 
all kinds of things, right? Being violent and um, internalizing violence and externalizing violence, all these different ways you're processing stress and trying to get rid of that anxiety. Right. Um, I started to think um, really critically about, well, how do, how do we learn how to control that anxiety? And what happens in people's environments to try and create less stress? Um, and I started getting interested in sort of Eastern philosophy and mindfulness. Okay. And at the time, it was kind of re, um, uh, re-entering academia. And um, several of my girlfriends from grad school were very interested in positive emotions and the brain and the role of meditation. And so I started to do a lot of reading um, and started to see the impacts that training our minds mm-hmm. has. And um, there's a lot of evidence that when you do have a practice like that, you can actually decrease those stress signals. Right. And so um, I got really interested in sort of applying mindfulness in chronic stress situations. So I um, ended up at the time, um, Stanford, um, while I was at SRI, um, got a big uh, infusion of uh, money from the Dalai Lama. Oh, wow. And they opened up a center called Seacare, and they have a class that they were offering. And um, I took the class to learn how to be a mindfulness instructor, and it's sort of secularized Buddhist tradition from Tibet, and the Dalai okay. Lama's um, translator helped write the curriculum. And so um, after finishing that um And because I was one of those sort of hyperactive people and having practiced some mindfulness in my own life to Mm -hmm. get me to where I need to be professionally, I decided that I wanted to teach in really stressful, chronic situations. And so I decided to be a mindfulness instructor in um, the juvenile detention system. Okay. Well, that was a jump. But okay. (laughs) So um, this is while I'm still doing the neuroscience, but I was starting to get interested in other ways of self-medicating, right? Right. And this was one. And so I did that for a few years with uh, um, the MBA program and um, looking at how young men in the MAX unit in some of these juvenile detention systems deal with chronic stress and trying to help them learn some other techniques to help cope with the chronic stress is really um really um, for my science was really important because it was helping me um, get to a place where I could help people in high stress trauma situations have alternative ways of coping. Yeah. So that's really cool. I mean, it sounds like you combined your education in neuroscience and behavioral neuroscience with the understanding that everything here is dealt with or is a product of stress or a product of self-medication. And so because we've done all this in order to be in a happier space, how about we create that happier space? We'll be mindful of what we're doing on a consistent basis. So that's really an interesting, neat transition from the education you got at school versus what you've seen and where you've worked and going into it from a different perspective. Yeah, and I, I think that that is something that I find I have in common with a lot of people of color who do science. Mm-hmm. Um, they're 
you know, I started off thinking theoretical physics was going to be something I wanted to engage in. And the reward of that is so abstract and so far away and not as tangible. And I, because when I grew up, I was poor, I wanted something tangible. I wanted something that I could show, right, <laughs> <laughs> that would make an impact in my community now, not later. And so... um I really think that that is one of the drivers that helped me shift my career in mm -hmm. this direction. And one of the things I wanted to share with you is that my last study at SRI was around this brain development in young people, adolescents. And um, I was in Menlo Atherton. Okay. Very high socioeconomic status, right? Okay. These are kids of CEOs, CFOs, okay. who's who in Silicon right. Valley. And... I was looking at wanting to study young people under chronic stress. My stereotype of that community was, what kind of stress do these kids <laughs> have, right? Like they're right. driving They're driving BMWs to <laughs> high school, are, right. They are, you know, and they have everything that they need. And um, I, I didn't realize that they actually have significant stress in their lives. And I was... Um, giving a um, psychological battery um, because I was trying to find young people that didn't meet criteria for alcohol abuse or drug abuse or anxiety or depression. And it was really hard to find young wow. people in that community who already weren't self-medicating. And based on this psychological battery of questions, the number one stressor for them was our educational system. Really? Even at, okay, so one would assume <laughs> that you're coming, that you're the children of uh, CEOs and all these high-powered people that you're getting the best education out there that you're not going to be a, as stressed as maybe a, a inner city school where they can't pay yeah. the teachers and the mm -hmm. education system is much worse. Well, what I was finding is that these young people were waking up at about 5 in the morning to go to do a sports. Mm. Then they were going to leadership class. Then they started their day. Right. At the end of the day, they were doing some extracurricular activity. And then they had to fit in their sort of service learning. Um, and their parents were working really long days. So they mm -hmm. weren't really home when they got home. And the opportunities for the elite schools were not enough for all of them and they were having really significant stress and what i found is that they were internalizing it so a lot of cutting mm. um um there's a higher prevalence of suicide in those communities wow they were already um doing drugs and um having alcohol, alcohol. and um I, di I didn't realize that all of that stress was happening there. And then I was comparing it to what I had experienced, right? right. With very poor schools, um, teachers that didn't really feel like they cared or that were engaged. Right. Um, and seeing how in our community, our young people are externalizing these things, right? Like they're not um, committing suicide. They're committing homicide. They're right. not... Right, cutting themselves, they're out fighting and doing things right, and um, and I was noticing that um, a lot of that violence was stemming from this very dysfunctional educational system, and so I 
decided that a better science question was how do you change the educational system, which is having such Ooh. a negative impact yes. on all sides, right? And we know, you know, that the system was designed for young, white, you know, middle-class men. And yet, even those folks were having such negative consequences because of the competitive nature of our system that, um, and no one was talking about that. And so for me, that w that's such a huge social justice issue. Um, and so that is kind of why I made the switch into education. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of In the Know with Kat Bobineau. Make sure you tune in next week for the conclusion of this interview.